Right, so this series, uh, it's a Bible overview, book by book series, which is like crazy. It's going to be intense. Um, if you want to read ahead week by week and try and read 50 chapters of Genesis ahead of the Genesis overview, feel free, go for it. I want to encourage you to use this time. If you're committed to this Bible overview, then it will be a bit longer than 66 weeks time because we're going to have some breaks. But in about two years, you will have read through the whole of the Bible in community with us at church. So that's where we're going. Uh, tonight is just an overview. So I wonder if you've got a Bible nearby, you want to be turning to Luke 24. And I'm going to read a few verses from Luke 24. So Luke 24, and uh, we're picking up the passage where two disciples meet the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And I'm just going to read a few verses, and then we're going to launch into this introduction to the Bible overview. And I did say this when beginning this series on Tuesday as well, that... Um, it, I'm sorry if it feels a bit wordy, I hope it won't, but uh, I, uh, since first preaching on this overview series, I've kind of compiled it into like kind of book form so that it was readable too, and, uh, and therefore it might feel a little bit wordy at times, but uh, I hope it really feeds you and I hope it inspires you to dig deeper into the Bible and to want to do this Bible overview this evening. So, uh, Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you guys discussing as you walk along together? And they get upset because they're like, why, you, you don't know what's been going on? I mean, this, this, this stuff that's been happening, this, this, this Jesus and his, his death, it's been life-changing. You haven't heard about this? And then verse 25, he says to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And here's the key verse for this introduction. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then just another few key verses. Verse 30, a little bit later that day, when he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Verse 31, <coughs> then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from the sight and they asked each other, I love this question, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And Father, we give you this time now and we ask for burning hearts. Please ignite our hearts with a passion for you, a passion to go deeper into your word. Amen. So around about the time I was just starting to preach regularly, I remember a friend very clearly saying to me, Greg, it's a sin to make the Bible sound boring. And I was quite shocked. And I remember thinking to myself, a sin? Oof, that's quite a strong word. 
my friend's, you know, he's a little bit fanatical, isn't he? Uh, what's worse, I think he might have said that after listening to one of my early sermons, but uh, hey-ho. I've pondered my friend's comment many times since then, and I have to confess that I've actually come to agree with him wholeheartedly, and I'm going to explain that to you before you assume I'm judging all of those preachers you've sat under uh, when you've needed kind of matchsticks to keep your eyes open because you've been <laughs> almost nodding off. In Luke 24, the risen Christ, as we've just been reading, he scoots up alongside two of his disciples uh, walking along the road to Emmaus. Jesus seems to be in some sort of disguise because they don't at first sight recognise him, despite enthusiastically talking all about him. They seem to be confused, understandably, because the women have reported that Jesus has risen from the dead. That kind of thing just doesn't happen in everyday life. Anyhow, it's here when Jesus pips in with the point, which I will be coming back to time and time again throughout this overview series. And he basically says this, the Bible, these scriptures, they're all about me. The Bible is all about Jesus. In verse 27, we're told that, that Jesus almost, he has like a little Bible study with the, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's, it's like a Bible study, a walking Bible study. And beginning, quote, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Basically, Jesus says that everything in this book, the Bible, concerns him. Now, I don't know about you, but I reckon it wouldn't take much to convince our friends that the New Testament was all about Jesus. Because, you know, you flick through the New Testament, his name crops up on pretty much every page. It's actually something else to convince our friends that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Because many of it, even the, the, the most, the latest book in the Old Testament, it's written 450 years before he was born. Take a little bit more to convince them that actually the Old Testament is all about Jesus. But that's what Jesus is referring to when talking about the scriptures with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's saying... All of the promises, an arrow, if you like, pointing towards him. Here's the fulfillment. All of the past sacrifices, all of the past promises, all of the past events, all fulfilled in him. And he's standing before their very eyes. And this, friends, is why coming back to my friend's comment, I think it's a sin to make the Bible sound boring. Because inadvertently, if I make the Bible sound boring, then I am, in fact, making Jesus, the subject and author of the Bible, sound boring. And I doubt for one second that any of Jesus' contemporaries would have said that he was boring. From the Gospels, we're given the impression that it was electrifying for the disciples, merely watching Jesus go about his daily activities. They never knew what he was going to do next. They became fairly accustomed to that, that feeling of being shocked, shocked by him doing the things they never expected. Uh, we were preaching on the calming of the storm a few weeks ago in our morning series. They didn't expect Jesus to be asleep on a boat during a storm. <laughs> they didn't expect him to then wake up and say three words to raging storms just about to crash over his head as though he was speaking to a naughty schoolboy in a classroom. Peace be still. And they certainly didn't expect those words to have an effect and the storm to then be calm. They didn't expect Jesus to touch a leper, but he did. They didn't expect him to speak to a Samaritan woman in the daytime in public. No way. Tut, tut, tut. But he did. 
And they certainly didn't expect him of all people, their leader, to wash their filthy feet. But he did. And from the Gospels, we're given the impression that it was electrifying for the disciples to hear what Jesus said, not just to see what he did. Some of them knew their Old Testaments quite well, but Jesus knew not just the words off by heart, but he knew the very heart and meaning behind those words. And often the disciples would have, I'm sure, fallen over in amazement listening to him. I mean, some of the challenging words that he spoke. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And obviously, women, you can hear that the other way around. (sighs) Getting right to the heart. Challenge. The word boring does not fit with Jesus. He was electrifying. Even his so-called enemies, those who sought to kill and destroy him, namely the Pharisees, even they didn't find him boring. In fact, we're told that they actually really did fall over in amazement when listening to Jesus. Told in the the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, Judas, the betrayer, leads a detachment of soldiers joined by a group of Pharisees to to find Jesus. They say, oh, we're looking for the one called Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say in reply? He says, I am he, pretty kind of odd response. Um, I am he, but we know what he's doing. He's referring to God's name revealed in the Old Testament. I am who I am, the unpronounceable name. And they were so shocked that he used that name for himself, the divinely appointed title, that they literally fell over. Who are you to blaspheme like that? Pharisees might not have liked what Jesus said, but they certainly didn't think him boring. He was a rebel in their eyes and a rebel who they needed to treat very carefully because he was a charismatic leader who would naturally, people would flock to. Now, when we begin to grasp this wonderful truth, the Bible is all about Jesus, the Jesus who is electrifying, then all of a sudden this book also becomes electrifying in our lives. It becomes dynamite. I loved hearing the story of one well-known enthusiastic Christian leader transporting a bag full of Bibles uh, across the, um, uh, the Iron Curtain and through customs. What's in the bag, sir? Asked the customs officer and he thought for a moment and then he replied, dynamite. You can imagine what happened after that. But it's a great story. I love hearing it. I've heard it many times. It always brings a smile to my face because Jesus truly is dynamite. He's the word of God, the bright morning star, the light of the world. He's electrifying. After their encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples, they're like little excited children. They're unable to stop reliving what they've just experienced. I don't know if you've experienced something of this incessant childish joy yourselves. I remember taking my godson to Alton Towers, the theme park, a few years ago. And the three-hour journey home, all I had in the back of the car was, wow, that was so amazing, that was so amazing. Oblivion was my favourite ride. Oh no, the smiler was much better. Just that drop, my tummy went, oh, it was so amazing. Three hours, incessant joy. But that's what I reckon these two disciples walking with Jesus along the road to Emmaus would have been like, unable to stop living what they've just experienced, a Bible study with Jesus. It says, verse 32, I quote, did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures. I have that feeling of euphoric amazement, the kind of feeling where, you know, you've you just got to calm down a little bit before you're able to do anything else. Right? Some of us have been there. Um, J.B. Phillips, one of my favorite translators of the Bible, uh, he, he says, their hearts were on fire. He, he uh, refers to their hearts as glowing. And again, you think of coals in a fire, just when they start burning red, they glow. That's what they've got with Jesus. When we realize that the Bible is all about Jesus, the word of God, and we remember the power of God's word, speaking all things into existence. Genesis 1 verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. When we realize all of that, when we believe all of that, this book, it becomes so exciting. And we think, actually, I want to do a Bible overview. <laughs> I want to do a book by book by overview. And actually, I, I want to read every chapter before the next I've, uh, overview. <laughs> That's the challenge for your friends. It becomes dynamite in our hearts. It's a sin to make the Bible sound boring because that would be to tell a lie and to tell a lie is to commit a sin. Now, a few details in this introduction before um, we kind of move on into the, into the book as a whole. We tend to class the Old Testament books into three distinct uh, sections today, namely the law, the prophets, and the writings. You might have seen that. Uh, back in Jesus' day, such divisions hadn't really been carved in stone yet. In fact, it was much more common for Jesus to refer to the Old Testament as simply the law and the prophets. And that's precisely what he does on the road to Emmaus. Uh, verse 27, beginning with Moses, i.e. the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, if we were to just render this verse, what it's actually saying, we could say, Jesus opened up all the scriptures with them and showed them how all the scriptures are about him. That's basically what he's saying when he's speaking to them. And if you just think about that for a second, it is mind-boggling. Let me tell you why. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a period spanning more than 1,600 years. And as I've already mentioned, the last of the 39 books in the Old Testament was written itself 450 years before Jesus' birth. And therefore, you know, it's just logic, Malachi never saw Jesus of Nazareth, nor did he see John the Baptist. And yet he writes, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And we know what happens. There's 450 years silence. John the Baptist rocks up, and immediately on his tail, Jesus, just as the prophet had predicted. David, King David, he lived around a thousand years before Jesus' birth. And yet he himself writes, speaking of an innocent sufferer in Psalm 22, quote, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, quote, they have pierced my hands and my feet, quote, they divide my garments among them and, and cast lots for my clothing. And we know, don't we, all of those verses, they're true of Jesus. As he dies on the cross, as he thirsts, as his hands and his feet are pierced, as, as Roman guards sponge off the crucifixion, casting lots for his clothing. It's amazing. Here's the thing, though. Not only did none of the Old Testament writers ever meet Jesus, none of them 
never met, or most of them, sorry, never met one another. And I find that staggering. Old Testament writers, they lived at different times in different places with different environments. Some of them were nomads. Some of them were rich city dwellers. Some of them, yeah, were, were rich. You know, they were kings, diplomats. Some of them were poor, shepherds and, and lowly prophets. And despite all of that, despite that vast kind of spectrum of, of beings involved in this Old Testament book, library of books, there seems to be this one coherent theme weaving its way all the way through the entirety of the Old Testament, namely Jesus, the hope of a Messiah. How could this be the case if this book were not divinely inspired? How could this be the case if human history were not his story, God's story? Now, friends, this was huge for me personally in coming to Christ when I realized that the intricate details of Jesus' death and his life, some outside of his own control, such as the casting of lots for his clothing whilst pinned to the cross, when I learned that, now at first I wanted to question the validity of, of Psalm 22, but then when I did that, I realized this book is the most researched book in the world. And every time I questioned it, I just came back to its authenticity and its historical reliability. For me, the testimony of over 40 authors all saying the same thing was far too much to discredit. And having lived and worked for a while in a predominantly Islamic country, the wealth of witness was one facet that I was happy to cling to when dialoguing with Muslims. I'm commenting on the Quran here, but I would struggle to believe in one man's testimony who steps out of a cave where he was alone, claiming to have been given the entire holy word of God. I would struggle when with the Bible, we have not one, not two, not 22, but over 40 writers all saying the same. And that is why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 reads, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, to say all scripture is about Jesus does not mean that all scripture depicts Jesus clearly, nor is it to say that all the Old Testament writers understood who or what they were writing about. They were inspired by God to write what they wrote. Many of them will have only truly understood what they wrote when looking down from their seat in heaven, excitingly watching how the story unfolded. They longed for a Messiah, but whilst here on earth, they didn't see him. They longed for a more sufficient sacrifice, whilst on earth didn't see it. They longed for a covenant they could live up to. They longed for a suffering servant. They longed for a new Israel. They longed for the nations to be judged. All these longings are expressed in the Old Testament and time and time again. God says these longings, they will be met. But the, the writers and the listeners, they, they don't know how. They just had to live in hope. We live in, in such a blessed time to be able to have the New Testament to read. I, I like the picture of finding yourself in a room in darkness. So imagine you're in a room, it's completely dark. You're fumbling around. We feel a bit confused. We're trying to make sense of our surroundings, reaching out our hand, touching things, probably end up banging our head. 
or, or breaking a toe. I'm playing hide and seek in the dark with my dad when, he was, when I was younger and he broke his toe in a dark room. However, in that room, when we pull back the curtains, everything makes sense. We can see that it was a lamp we were feeling, not an elephant trunk. None of the furniture has changed place by opening the curtains. It's just that now we can see everything. And friends, that's what it's like with Jesus, the light of the world. Without him, the Old Testament, if you like, is, is a room in darkness. We fumble around looking for light. Nothing makes sense. When Jesus shows up, it's not that anything has changed. All of the Old Testament words remain the same. The history remains the same. The promises remain the same. It's just that now we can see where it's all pointing. And for this reason, and this is going to be crucial to our Bible overview, when reading the Old Testament, we will need to understand historical context. Otherwise, we'll mistake things like the Feast of Booths for Glastonbury. And it wasn't Glastonbury. Uh, we'll need to understand biblical context too. Otherwise, we won't appreciate how God was progressively revealing more and more of himself and his salvation plan over the years. Yet most importantly, I've got to understand that as we read the Old Testament, we read it through the lens of everything that's happened since. Namely, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We read the Gospels, we read the New Testament the same way. We cannot read, for example, of the Levitical sacrifices without referring to Jesus' sacrifice. That would be to completely miss the point. If a Christian preacher fails to do that, they may as well be giving a rabbinical lecture, which is more fitting in a synagogue. The Bible, friends, this book, it is all about Jesus. Jesus is electrifying. Good news. That's what the word gospel means. And so, can I challenge you as you begin to read the whole Bible, book by book? You've got to constantly be asking that question. How is this pointing me to Jesus? that's the book's intention. Uh, before I, I draw this introduction to a conclusion, let me briefly revisit my friend's comment. Greg, it's a sin to make the Bible sound boring. I, I want to make it clear that I'm not judging every preacher who we feel has sent us to sleep in the past. I hope I haven't been doing that tonight. Wake up. Quite often, it's actually we as listeners who are more to blame We've got to come expectant. It is lovely praying with the prayer team before this, coming with, with, with hearts ready to receive God's word. So I challenge you, if, if you want the most out of the Bible, are you doing that before you come to your evening service, your morning service, praying that the Lord is going to speak to you this evening? The onus is on you, not just on me. It's a book containing the word of life, namely Jesus. And our prayer is that he will literally jump off the pages into our life that our hearts might burn within. And I also want to say that we've got to understand that as we read this book, we're going to encounter loads of different literary genre, from poetry to prose, from genealogies to really exciting narrative. Uh, taking the Bible literally does not necessarily mean taking every word literally. Instead, it means recognizing literary genre and applying basic understanding to how such a genre should be understood. For example, 
When I read in Psalm 91 verse 4, I quote, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. If I took that literally, I might think, well, God's a bird. He's got wings. But no, I understand the literary genre being used. It's poetry. And I understand that God there, he wants to, 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 to cover us like a hen covers all of its chicks with security, with love, with care. Now, friends, each of us is going to have favorite literary genre. And we'll find reading a particular type of genre more exciting than others. I mean, for me, genealogies, they're not the most exciting. But I recognize that in the last decade, things have changed because everybody seems to be interested in family trees now and like spending money on doing family trees. So maybe it might be that numbers becomes more exciting for this generation with all the genealogies mentioned. Friends, all scriptures got breathed. Even the bits that we don't, what we find hard to navigate, we can't skip them because they're good for us. And just before I close, I want to say it's, it's easy to also read the Bible like any other book, uh, maybe a novel, maybe an academic textbook, which I wouldn't pray before reading. Well, I guess some doing exams right now, they might be praying over their textbooks before <laughs> reading them, but you wouldn't really pray over reading them. You know, you'd read a novel for fun. It's not going to necessarily change your life. You're not going to live your life by it. But the Bible, if we want to read it for what it's worth, it demands that we pray about it before reading it. Because it does, it's this book of life that has the power to truly change how we live. If, the, if we read the Bible as it intends to be read, then we will not be able to simply be sat at a desk with a marker pen. Soon we're going to move from there to the floor on our knees in worship. Friends, that's the introduction to this book-by-book Bible overview. It's all about Jesus, the everlasting word. And he himself calls the good word honey. It's food for our soul. It is Winnie the Pooh, lick your lips tasty. It's a light for our path. Life only truly makes sense when we read it. And once again, I want to say the Bible is the opposite of boring and it has the power to drastically change your life. Enjoy reading it. And I'm enjoying the fact that we're going to be journeying through this together. Should we take a moment of quiet as the music team uh, come up? And we're going to be spending the rest of our time uh, just, as I said, moving from hearing about that to worship. Because that's ultimately where the Bible wants to have us.